Today's sermon passage is found in Psalm 77. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. As you take your seat, let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we come now in the name of Jesus, your Son, our Lord, our Redeemer. In his name, we trust that you hear us. In his name, we trust that you receive our prayers. In his name, we trust that you will act in covenant love and faithfulness because you are faithful to your Son and to your Word and to his people. And now, oh God, we cry out. We cry out because we long to see you as you are. We long to hear your word and delight in you. We long to be moved to walk in your ways. Oh Lord, we pray today that you would stir in us faith, hope, love. We pray that you would stir in us a deep confidence in you that carries us through a fallen world. We pray you would stir a deep confidence in you that causes us, even for one more day, to put one foot in front of another and move. We pray, O Lord, that you would stir your people, known as Redeemer Church, to trust you, to love you, to be faithful to you. We pray that you would bear much, much fruit through us. So particularly, Lord, for those gospel seeds that were sown this week in Vacation Bible School. We pray you would water them and nurture them and grow them. And we pray that, that in years and decades that lie ahead, 
there would be a generation of, of men and women who serve your kingdom and love you through the gospel seeds that were planted this week. Oh Lord, would you work such things in our midst? Lord, we pray for the gatherings and the ministry of this church. We pray you would bless us. You would keep us. You would protect us from the evil one. You would watch over us and you would move us in paths of righteousness for the sake of your name. And Lord, particularly this week, we pray for the meetings and the work of our family of churches, our denomination, and we pray that this week you would move in such a way that your people would be faithful to you. Your people would serve you in ways that would honor you. That your people would be biblical and your people would stand for you and your word and your ways and goodness and righteousness and peace and mercy and joy and justice, O oh Lord. Would you work through your people, particularly our family of churches this week? Lord, we look to your word because we need you. We look to your word because we know it's true. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, it's so good to see you all this morning. If you haven't done so already, please take your Bible. If you didn't bring a Bible, there's one under the chair in front of you. Turn to Psalm 77. This summer at Redeemer, we are spending our time in the Psalms. The book of Psalms is 150 prayers or songs to God. So 150 prayers and songs to God. Now, why are they in there? Well, I'm a simpleton at heart. I believe they're in there to teach us how to pray, to teach us how to sing, and to teach us how to approach the Lord. Because what Jesus, the Son, has purchased for us is access into the presence of God. And these psalms are written to help us enter in, to help us move now, of the 150, so we're going to spend our summer at Redeemer in the Psalms. Of the 150, a large portion of them are Psalms of lament. Psalms of lament. Lament is, is a word we don't use often, but here's what lament means. A passionate expression of grief or sorrow. A passionate expression of grief or sorrow. And that probably catches some of you off guard today. God-inspired books and chapters of the Bible to teach us how to express our grief and sorrow to him. God-inspired chapters of the scripture to teach us how to bring our griefs and our sorrows before him. And Psalm 77 is one of those. So before we dive into the psalm, hear me clearly. The faith that God delights in is not pretending everything is okay. The faith that God delights in is clinging to him in all situations. The 
The faith that God delights in is clinging to him in all situations. The worship that God delights in is not just an expression of happiness. The worship that God delights in is choosing to tell of his goodness and his faithfulness even when we don't feel like it. The worship that God delights in is choosing to tell of and celebrate and lean into his goodness and faithfulness even when we don't feel like it or maybe even when we don't feel it. Psalm 77 written by Asaph, inspired by God to teach us to express faith and worship in the midst of suffering and hardship. This psalm is written for that moment when all you can do is turn off the lights in your bedroom, curl up in the fetal position, put your hands over the top of your set head, and murmur, Lord, help me. Lord, help me. And my burden as your pastor today is I want you to know that when you say, Lord, help me, and it comes from a place of doubt, God hasn't abandoned you. And it comes from a place of anguish, God hasn't abandoned you. If it comes from a place of straight up anger, God hasn't abandoned you. Because all of that, while clinging to God's word and promises and character, is faith, and God delights in the faith of his people. Exclamation point. I was screaming at this point in the first service. It's a long sermon, so I'm trying to tame myself and pace myself a little bit here. But let me just go ahead and put all my cards on the table. I don't know how this evolved, but somehow in the Bible Belt Southern evangelicalism that we're all a part of, this ethos has arisen that if, if you're not good, if you're not okay, then what God wants you to do is just pretend like you're okay. That's not biblical. And I'm going to try to convince you of that this morning. What's arisen is this culture that if you have questions or doubts or fears or anxieties, that what you need to do is kind of tuck those away because if you say those to God, that's not faith. Wrong. If you're taking those to the Lord and saying, help me, that's the faith that he delights in. See, now I'm screaming. (laughs) Friends, and I'm not going to expose anybody's stuff here, I promise. We, have a, we keep a prayer list here of what's going on in our church. Our church is about 100 families. Is that right, Austin? I've said that twice today. Is that close to right? Okay. 
This man does details. I just talk, okay? Um, our church is about 100 families. And right now, that piece of paper, there are 20 families in our church going through a life-defining crisis right now. And after I said this in the first service, I learned of two more. So let's just double it. I think probably 40% of our congregation is going through a life-defining crisis right now. And if our faith and our religion and our expression of trust in Jesus doesn't make a space for those who are hurting and suffering and doubting and wondering if they want to get up and live another day, those who are sitting in the fetal position, rubbing their head, saying, how long, O oh Lord? If our faith doesn't yield hope and comfort to those folks, we're just a bunch of hypocrites. And that's probably the harshest thing I've ever said to this congregation. I just don't want us to be those people. I want us to be the people who gently and lovingly say, look to the Lord. He's with you. Look to the Lord. He loves you. Look to the Lord. He cares. Look to the Lord. This psalm helps us do that. So that's why we're going to look at Psalm 77 this morning. First point. Hardship to lament. Hardship to lament. Verses 1 through 9 tell of the hardship of the psalmist. It's not really specific. And I actually think that's a gift to us because it helps us see ourselves, our own life, our own faith in what's going on here. But the psalmist is clearly in a very hard place. Verse 2. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. So the psalmist is saying, I'm in a day of trouble. I'm in these long nights where my soul is not comforted. Verse 4, you hold my eyelids open. I can't sleep because of my hardship. Verse 4, I'm so troubled that I can't speak. I can't even speak of the hardship. And on the psalmist goes. So the psalmist is saying, I'm writing from a place of deep hardship. And notice what the psalmist is going to do here is he's not going to take the hardship and move to, to pretend like it's not going on. But he's going to take the hardship and he's going to lean into an open lament before the Lord. An open expressing the grief and sorrow of the moment. And I think the biggest takeaway we can see in this passage is that lament is an acceptable form of worship. So the psalmist shows us that he's in a very hard place. Second, the psalmist, the psalmist shows us that his hardship is not easily settled by the platitudes of religion. Look at verse 3. When I remember God, we expect, my heart leaps with joy. He says, I moan. I moan. 
when I meditate, we expect the word triggered something in my brain. And all of a sudden, it was like none of the horrible things ever happened. And the book of Job got ripped right out of the Bible. He says, my spirit faints. Verse 5. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. So here's what's going on in verse 5 and 6. The psalmist says, I tell you what, I'll remember that camp high. I'll remember that time I went on a mission trip and I saw God move and I'm like, he's real. By the way, if you've had that moment, lean into it. That's a gift from the Lord. But the psalmist says, I know such a despair that even remembering that moment does nothing for me. Because I remember it, and you know what spins out of it? Five doubting questions of God. That's what spins out of it. So we see a psalmist who's in a very hard place. We see a psalmist who's not easily settled by the platitudes of religion. And third, we see a psalmist who is not attempting to sugarcoat his thoughts, his words, or his feelings about God. We see a psalmist who is not sugarcoating or attempting to sugarcoat his thoughts, words, or feelings about God. This is verses 7 through 9. The psalmist goes on a diligent search, and you know what he finds? Five questions. Number one, God, are you going to spurn me forever? Number two, Has your steadfast love ceased forever? By the way, steadfast love in our English translation, that's the Hebrew word for God's covenant faithfulness to his people. So the psalmist has point blank come to the Lord in prayer and said, have you ceased to be the covenant God? Number three, are your promises at an end for all time? Number four, have you forgotten to be gracious? Number five, has anger overcome compassion in you, O God? We have a decision to make right here in interpretation. Are these the psychotic babblings of a depressed man? Or are they questions that the Lord will allow his people to bring to him and wrestle out before him. And I believe they're in the scripture because they're the kind of questions that the Lord will allow his people to bring before him and wrestle out before him. So this is a psalm for those in hardship. And the the psalm's answer to hardship doesn't seem to be to pretend like you're not in hardship. It doesn't seem to be to pretend like it's all going to be over tomorrow. But rather it seems to be to take your hardship with honesty before the Lord. That's called lament. And understand that lament is an acceptable form of worship and prayer. This is what I want us to learn together. So before we leave this point, let's do a little bit of application. Number one. God accepts the lament of his people as worship. God accepts the lament of his people 
as worship. I think that's why Psalm 77 and a whole host of other ones just like it are in the scripture. Number two, God doesn't hold our doubts and questions against us. God doesn't hold our doubts and questions against us. I mean, I'll come back to that. Number three, the breakthrough, the clearer vision forward, the the more joyful mindset doesn't come instantly. It doesn't come instantly. Do you hear the words of the psalmist? I'm moaning. I'm fainting. Those are words of fatigue. They're words of long-term, sleepless nights, wearying on. Often here at Redeemer, I say something like this. You don't have to perform for God because of Christ. And when I say that, I often say it in the context of conversion, in the context of evangelism, in the context of coming to faith, which would mean you don't have to clean yourself up and perform to become a Christ follower. Just come. He died for your sin. He'll take it all away. But Christian, that statement, you don't have to perform before God, it applies to us too. We don't have to tidy up before we can pray. We don't have to tidy up before we can open our Bibles and hear the word of the Lord. We don't have to tidy up and make sure we're really sorry before we can repent of our sin. Lament, anguish, sorrow, hurt, doubt, longing, How long, O Lord, type questions are the warp and woof of the life of faith in a fallen world. I mean, when's the last time? Let's just be honest, except I'm not going to make you raise your hands because there's a lot of people. But when's the last time you went through a 24-hour period and thought, that was just pristine? (laughs) I mean, I just couldn't have scripted that any better. I mean, like one of those a year is about what we're all hoping for, right? So do we only worship and pray on that one day? Or do we let all of it be part of our life before the Lord? Fourth, this is for your hardship. This is how you walk by faith through your hardship. But Christians, hear me clearly. This psalm must shape how we walk with others through their hardship. I cannot count the number of people who have told me the hardest thing about my season of suffering was the stupid things that Christians said to me. And I look like everybody's like, yeah. I've hated the sermon until right now. Now you got me. I remember that. 
When people are suffering, our goal is not to make them happy. And our goal is not to make the suffering go away. Our goal is to help them grasp for the Lord in the suffering. I mean, I've been in pastoral ministry for 16-ish years now. And I used to think that when people came to me with their stuff, my job was to fix it in 45 minutes or less. Just clean that right up. No. My job's to listen, to hear, to clarify what's going on, and to point that suffering soul to the Lord. And to get that suffering soul talking to the Lord. Because that's where the work's going to happen. That's where the work's going to happen. I have a feeling I'm just making trouble for myself, but I'm going to keep going. How many of us would honestly, if somebody said, when I think of God, I moan. When I try to meditate on the scripture, my spirit's weak, fainting. When I, think of the, when I think of God, I just wonder if he is going to spurn me forever, if his covenant love has failed, if his promises are over forever, if he's failed to be gracious, if his anger is shut up in compassion. You know why I'm skewing my voice this way? Because this is how hurting people talk, okay? I wonder how many of us would hear that person and think, oh my Lord, they have forsaken Jesus. We need to pray for them. They are lost. How many of us think that? The psalmist is sitting here saying, say it. Say it. God knows anyway. You might as well go ahead and say it. Embrace it. Lean into it. And ask for faith to transcend it all. I'm just going to ask you, the next time you're in community group and you're sitting in the circle sharing prayer requests and somebody's actually brave enough to be real, which happens about twice a year, don't be the person that thinks you can fix it in 15 seconds by shoving Romans 8.28 down their throat. Please. Please. Well, Romans 8.28 is very true. It brings great joy for God works all things together for good for those who are loved him, called according to his purpose. It, it, it's true but it's not a weapon. So let's learn the discipline of lament as a way forward through hardship. I'm not saying that all of life is lament, but I'm saying there's a whole lot of lament to go around. Let me rephrase that. I'm not saying that all of life is a hardship, but there's a whole lot of hardship going around, and lament is the step of faith through the hardship. So some of you are sitting here going, man, this is the most depressing place I've ever been in my life. Why do you people do this every week? I think it's real. That's one. But two, there is hope here. There is hope here. Here's the hope. The current hardship doesn't define who we are, and it doesn't define what God is doing. So the second point this morning, God acts in hardship. God acts, he, he acts for his people through and in hardship. 
So we're in a pretty bleak place here in verse 9. Verses 10 through 20, the psalmist says this. I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. So here's what, what he says. He says, I'm going to remember all the things that God has done for his people. And as we said last week from Psalm 66, the scripture is a collection of stories of all the things that God has done to his people. But what's interesting here is the psalmist goes in Psalm 77, not written by the same psalmist of Psalm 66, goes to the exact same story, the story of the Exodus, the story of God's deliverance of his people out of slavery, bondage, oppression, and servitude for generations upon generations in Egypt. The psalmist goes to that story, and he says, look, God, verse 15, redeemed his people the children of Jacob and Joseph. So in our hardship, in our lament, let's speak to ourselves the stories of God's past faithfulness, even if it doesn't feel good to talk about it, and even if we don't want to hear it. But there's something more that goes on here. The psalmist hyper-focuses on a particular piece of the Exodus narrative. And this is in verses 16 and 20. So let's do a little rewind. Here's the Exodus narrative. God's people are in slavery, oppression, bondage in Egypt. They're there for generations upon generations. God comes, sends a man, Moses, his brother Aaron. And through Moses and Aaron, God delivers his people out of slavery in Egypt moving toward a promised land, okay? Now, we could tell the story that way. They were in slavery, and God delivered them. Let's celebrate the God who delivers from hardship. That would be true, and that's, that's the beginnings of it. But the psalmist takes us a little deeper, and I think the little deeper is the beautiful part here, okay? What he does, beginning of verse 16, is he begins to hyper focus on the part of the Exodus story when they crossed the Red Sea. You know, you all know that part. You know, Charlton Heston slash Moses stands up and holds up the staff and and the waters part. There was a movie where Charlton Heston played Moses. Y'all didn't get that. Older people did. Okay, good, yeah, okay. Parted. The people go through on dry land. Pharaoh and his armies run through. The waters fall in. Pharaoh's defeated. God's people are delivered. So, the psalmist hyper-focuses on this part of the story. The part of the story where the seas are parted by God's power, by God's word, the seas are parted, and the people move through, and the armies are destroyed. But then it's, it's, it's almost if he's meditating on it. And he says in verse 19, Your way was through the sea. Your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. Now, this is in Exodus chapter 14. Now, notice this. The people leave Egypt. They're going back to the promised land. They know where that is. And there was an expedient way there. We we might, in modern vernacular, say you could get there on the interstate, but you're taking Highway 31. Why? Why? There was a straight path that was all land, 
required no water crossings. Do you know why they didn't go on that path? Because God said, you're not going on that path. You're going on another path. Well, that doesn't make sense. Well, we're going on that path. And God kept leading them down a path where they are literally out of land. They're up against the sea. And remember, this is sitting like four or five people. It's a huge multitude. And they see Pharaoh's armies coming from them, coming for them, coming to destroy them. Why? Because God told them to go that way. So now, just put yourself in that situation. You're camped out by the sea. You can't go forward. You can't go back because the armies are coming for you. All because you listened to the man named Moses who said God told you to go this way. Now, can you imagine that discussion with your spouse? You know, you're just sitting there holding your babe. Hey, we're in a predicament, aren't we? How'd we get here? Well, God told Moses. Hmm. And you believed him and led us here? Yeah. Okay. Now, we hyper-focus on what happened next. The seas part. The people cross. The enemies are destroyed. But before that was Psalm 77, hardship. That's what it was. And so the psalmist is finding comfort in the part of the Exodus story where it looked like all was lost and God delivered his people. The psalmist is finding comfort not just in the fact that God is powerful enough to deliver his people, but he's right enough to lead his people on the right paths, even the ones that look foolish for the covenant keeping of his holy name. So this is the line. Your path was through the sea. Your path through the great waters. Your footprints were unseen. What the psalmist is saying is that quote-unquote wrong turn off the easy path, that was God's turn. That quote-unquote mistake that trapped us by the sea, that was God's work. Those nights of us camping out going, Lord, help, what are we going to do? That was God's work. And then God parting the sea. That was God's work. What this tells us is that deliverance by nature always comes from hardship. Look, if life in Egypt was like a week at an all-inclusive Caribbean resort, they wouldn't have wanted to leave. Deliverance, by linguistic definition, always comes from massive hardship. So the dial of faith tunes our brains to say, I will believe that the God who redeemed me and saved me and called me his own and numbers my days and has prepared eternity for me to be among his people, that God 
His footprints are everywhere even when I don't see them. That God, he's led me right here. And that God, I will trust even when I don't want to. And even when I don't feel like it. And even when I can't muster up the strength for it. Because that God is the God who is faithful. It is the righteous works of God's faithfulness that catapult God's people forward in faith through hardship and lamentable situations. So I want to remind you of two things as we conclude. Number one, faith is trusting God when we don't know what's coming. Faith is not absolute certainty of everything that's going to happen. If we had absolute certainty of all things, we wouldn't need faith. Whatever the uncertainty, trust that the Lord's brought you here to teach you to trust him and trust him and cry out to him and pray to him. Second, worship is celebrating and telling of the goodness and faithfulness of God even when we don't feel like it. Worship is celebrating and retelling the goodness and faithfulness of God even when we don't feel like it. Tell the stories. Hear the stories. Celebrate the stories. Can I tell you one more story of God acting in hardship? So we say, yeah, because I'm going to anyway, so let's just do it compliantly. The story that defines us really isn't the Exodus. The story that defines us is the greater Exodus. It's God sending his son Jesus into the world to redeem his people, not from physical slavery and bondage, but from sin and death that lasts forever. And here's how the story unfolded. God's son was born of a virgin. God's son grew up in a good Jewish home. God's son completely fulfilled and obeyed the law of God. And then God's son rode into Jerusalem on a white donkey with the people shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. Here's what the people were saying. He's come and we got a front row seat to the celebration. But then everything turned. He was betrayed, arrested, condemned, beaten. Hung on a cross. Bled, died, cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Was taken off the cross, put in a tomb, a massive stone, prepared for death, prepared for burial. A massive stone is rolled in front of the tomb. Do you know what filled the disciples at that moment? Psalm 77 filled the disciples. They were scared. 
they were afraid. What if they kill us too? What if we were wrong? What if he wasn't the chosen one? What if he wasn't the one to redeem us? He's supposed to live and reign forever. But he's dead. And it's out of that horrible hardship that on the third day, they came to the garden and the stone was gone. And he wasn't in there anymore because he was risen. And he appeared to them and he talked to them and he taught them and they celebrated because the resurrection brings joy. But the joy of resurrection flows through the hardship of crucifixion. And some overly theologically, overly nerdy people will say this. The Christian life is a cruciform life. And what they mean is this. We're always walking through crucifixion, longing for the resurrection. The blessing of the Lord always flows through the hardship that produces the longing. So what I'm doing with Psalm 77 is I'm wanting us to be a gospel people, a Jesus people, a, a forgiven, redeemed, renewed, joyful people who don't think that that means we won't face a broken world, but who aren't broken and defined by the broken world. This is what we're longing for. And it's really hard. But the Spirit of God is with us. And let's be the people who breathe that kind of life into one another. So our Father and our God, we pray now that you would take these words that have been spoken and as much as they're true, as much as they're good, as much as they're right, we pray you would fill us with hope and confidence in you. A hope and confidence in you that carries us forward day by day and moment by moment for the glory of your name. We pray this in Jesus' name.